This is the Land and Legacy Podcast, brought to you by Whitetail Properties Real Estate. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your weekly resource for habitat management, wildlife management, and recreational real estate. We hope you guys enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome back to another Land and Legacy podcast. We are at a convention hall. I've got Kyle, Frank, and a special guest. So yes, yes. I'm really taking a back seat to this podcast. I'm just going to turn it over to you guys, let you introduce the guests, the topic, and then uh, we'll start talking. Sure. Yeah, so we're here in beautiful Springfield, Missouri, uh, at the Quail 9 convention. Um, the Quail 9 is part of the Quail Symposia that happens every five years where researchers from Across the quail world, um, including Western quail, Bob White, get together and talk about the research that's occurred over the last five years. And we have a, a super great guest, uh, James Martin, Associate Professor of Wildlife from the University of Georgia, head of the Martin Game Bird uh, Lab there. And James, I, I'll say it, I think you're the, the top quail mind in the country today. And uh, it's an honor to call you a friend, and it's an honor for you to be here. So, Welcome. Well, appreciate it. I'm not sure I agree with you on the, <laughs> the top part, but uh, there's a lot of talented people out there, but I appreciate the compliment. Yeah. So uh, thanks for being here. And, and before we get started, um, so you flew in not from Georgia directly, I take it. You've kind of taken an international route here, right? <laughs> yeah, I left uh, Trondheim, Norway at 6 a.m. Norway time on Saturday, flew to Atlanta, spent the night at my home in Athens, Georgia. And drove over in a van with my graduate students oh, wow. from Whoa. from Athens, Georgia, on uh, Sunday. Got here Sunday night, so I'm operating on Norway time, which is seven hours ahead. Oh, of where I thought you flew straight. <laughs> oh, wow, man! I had a so, 45 minute drive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's so, it. So I literally took a took a train, a plane, two planes, a shuttle, a car, a van to get here. Man, you really wanted to be in Springfield. At, I did. At, at Quail absolutely. Yeah. You said absolutely. it was a beautiful town. I was like, that's kind of generous. <laughs> well, it was beautiful driving across southern Missouri. I'd never taken go. that route uh, through the Ozarks and whatnot. You could definitely see where historically that would probably have been a lot of quail country. Well, sure. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, in fact, Aldo Leopold used to hunt along quail along the current river. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. And so if you yeah. look at the current river now, you're like, there's huh? no way. Yeah, what was he doing yeah. hunting there? Right. What do he know? <laughs> <laughs> right? And he's supposed to be smart or something? <laughs> yeah. 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 Interesting. Now, you can see it. You can see it. You go back in time, close your eyes and go back in time. You can picture that. Yeah. Well, before we get kind of into the meat yeah. of this, I want to I want to have you give a chance to kind of talk about your background and what got you in, interested in Bob White's, in the game bird world, and the, the game bird hunting world, kind of from a, from a perspective of what kind of got you here. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I grew up in a rural town in North Carolina. Uh, it was a t- tobacco farming community. I grew up working for a guy on the tobacco farm. I started working for him when I was 11 and worked all the way till I was 22. And uh, so I had a you know agricultural background. I enjoyed solving problems and, and working with the land. And then and my grandfather was a hunter. He had bird dogs when I was a kid. My Uncle Buck had a bird dog. He raised quail for dog training, but in the early 80s, you know, bird quail had really declined in North Carolina, and, and 
I remember my grandfather's last bird dog. I remember his last hunt, uh, him and my Uncle Buck and my cousin Wayne. They went out and hunted all day, and it didn't find any birds. And I just remember the look in their eyes mm. and, and just kind of that out of Leopold, you know, dying wolf kind of right. thing. You know, right. it was just like they knew it was over for them, you know. And, and they my, once my grandfather's bird dog died, he didn't get any more. Um, there was another guy I was a friend with, Jim Pentecost, and, and he also had bird dogs, and he still does. And so I was always kind of around people that have bird dogs. And when I got to college, I was like, I got to have one of these, you know, and um, started going on hunting trips and teaching myself about hunting and training bird dogs. And along that whole way, I got more interested in the bio- biological side of quail seeing the very few cubbies that were still left around my hometown and just become fascinated with their ecology. Um, and then about sophomore year of college, I was like, you know what, I'm pretty much going to dedicate my life to this bird in some way or another. I don't know if I admitted that to myself mm-hmm. at that time, but I definitely admitted it by the time I was a senior in college and uh, really haven't looked back since. Uh, pretty much wake up thinking about them once I get my coffee in the morning. That's, that's, that's what's on my mind. <laughs> Oh, that's that's yeah. music to my ears for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's it's the bird is giving so much back to me. You know, I, I always stop and appreciate you know that I, the fact that I've gone to school, studied the bird, which paid my way. Mm-hmm. Um, it pays my salary. You know, it, it's been good to me. You know, so uh, yeah, I just have a passion for it. Yeah. Well, and the reality is, there's it's a small group anymore that yeah that are that dedicated. To this bird, unfortunately, yeah, it, it's not a huge. <laughs> it's not, and it, 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 and it makes sense that it's not, and that's sort of sad to say. But I'm teaching kids at University of Georgia that were born in 2002, three. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. so how in the world would they know much about yeah. this bird right. if, if you grow up in suburban right. Atlanta or wherever? Well, even rural Missouri now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Frank and I are fortunate. We grew up and our yeah. dads took us quail right. hunting, but right. the the next generation hasn't had that luxury. No, so you it, can't fault them for it. Right. No, no yeah. it's, it's just like we're not appreciative of elk in the East. At least I'm not because I not, didn't grow up around them, but how could I be? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 They've been long gone for centuries. Yeah. Almost, mm-hmm. So. No, it, it's a good point you make. We've we've sort of lost that quail hunting culture, and with oh, it, for sure. and with it, yeah. um, an interest in in promoting quail conservation. Because um, quite frankly, I mean, if if there's if there's no birds to hunt, you know, it, it'd be honest with you that drives conservation in a lot of in a lot of cases. Sure. The pursuit, know, yeah, pursuit yeah. of that, and right. so that culture has been lost. And it's and I know talking to you in the past. You said you've had trouble finding grad students that that want to work on quail projects. Yeah, they're not as sexy as say a, a turkey project or a deer or a waterfowl, right. whatever the case may be. Right. Yeah, we. I end up with good students, but you got to look a bit harder for them. Um, and then once they get into it, they 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 really engage and and they're excited about it or whatever. But again, when when there's been a whole generation that hasn't really experienced the bird and the dogs, et cetera. You can see why it's hard to come by a lot of people that are interested, um, and it's getting harder. Yeah, it's getting harder. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's jump into your research interest. I know that yeah. you know you've you've got a lot of students. You've got a wide uh, a, a wide variety of research interests. But sure. sort of what drives your lab right now? What are some of the things you've 
that you've worked on in the past and some some of the things that are kind of driving it right now going forward? Sure. Yeah, I've been um, – I got my Ph.D. in 2010, and I was at Mississippi State a while, and now I'm at UGA. I've been there about eight years now. And so I've covered a lot of topics, a lot of things about harvest management, brood ecology, uh, population ecology, uh, landscape level type things, processes, and, and modeling. Um, basically, any I'll study anything that I feel like that's going to solve a problem that's going to lead to someone being more informed when they go make a decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try and let the managers dictate that question, folks like yourselves, so that my research is useful. Yeah. Now, now sometimes <clears throat> we do research that's esoteric in a lot of ways, and that's fine. And I, I'm, I'm guilty of that, and, and I will continue to do some of that type of research as basic quail ecology because you never know when it might be useful. Mm-hmm. But usually the way our funding works is the, the funding for the research comes from people that have a specific question or problem they're trying to solve, and we try to help them solve that. Um, so really my interests are pretty broad as long mm-hmm. as it's applicable to someone's problem that they need help with. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to talk about research and, and – um, you know, Bob White's have been studied for a long, long time. Sure. Right? Yeah. Late 20s, early yeah. 30s. Um, yeah, basically a century now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, it's maybe other than mallards or turkey, it, mm-hmm. it may have more literature than any game bird, really, that we, we have. But we're still learning. After all those years and all that research, we're still learning things about Bob White's that, that we didn't know, whether that's because we overlooked it sure. or dynamics have changed. Right. Uh, right. All, that's right. That's a, that's a great point, and p- people often overlook that fact is we're studying a bird that's in a completely different context than it was 30 years ago or 20 years ago. I mean, yeah. There's even a lot changed in the last 20 years. Um, so the system is changing. The biology of the bird is not changing all that much, but the ecological relationships that it has with land use changes constantly, mm-hmm. and it will continue to change. Yeah. Um, yeah, we – when I first started out in this, this business, I guess, you, a lot of people you could hear say, well, we know enough, yep. you know, whatever. That's true. I mean, we know a lot, but, I, you know, the Albany Quail Project is, is a good example of this, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit more when I talk tomorrow, is that just as recently as 20 years ago, they were, you know, had a density of quail of like 1.2 quail per acre, and everybody would say, well, we that's it. As good as we can do, we've learned enough what we can. And, but now, 20 years later, they've basically doubled it because mm-hmm. what they've learned. And so if, if a place is so as well-intensively managed and well-managed as that, can still learn more and do more, yeah. imagine what we can learn and do more on other places. Right. So I, I don't really buy this idea that we know everything we need to know. It's like, well, if that's the case, then why aren't we doing it? Um, <laughs> Great question. <laughs> and there's some uh, some truth to that, but Frank and I had two two moments in our career that that really spoke to that. Yeah. And one of them was, you know, we were trying to get our project rolling. Mm-hmm. And two years in a row we got denied with yeah. a proposal right. saying, "Oh, we know what to do for quail." Right. Yet the graph yeah looked like a <laughs> yeah. snowball yeah. rolling downhill right. headed right. to you know where. Right. Like, really? We yeah. know what to do. Yeah. And the second moment I had in my career that was like, huh, was Dale Rollins. Yeah. I remember listening to him give yeah. a speech, and he said, you know, I'm not sure we've got all the answers. Yeah. And I thought, wow. Yeah, we if, don't. If Dale Rollins doesn't know, right. 
what to do for quail all right. the time, yeah. then it's pretty arrogant of me, Kyle sure. Hedges, as a public uh, landsman, yeah. to think that I know what yeah. I, I mean. Right, right. Because things change. The yeah. landscape, the bird didn't change, right. but everything around the wildlife area changed. I mean, it's, yeah, sure. it, it's not the same situation. No, definitely not. You, you definitely. said something earlier that, you know, you're, you're, we know the bird, we know the biology, yeah. but the most landscape of, most has, of the biology. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the landscape is changing. It's yeah. a moving target, right, to try yeah. and get ahead of that. That's going to be yeah. difficult. But right. what, when we're working with landowners, a lot of the common uh, phrases that, that can be used can be summarized by, well, the landscape really hasn't changed. How has it changed? Sure. Well, it's like it's apparent to folks like us who work in it right. every single day. Right. But, but growing up in the southeast, just if you don't mind, quickly talk about, because the southeast is just mind-blowing in the last 200 years, 300 years, what's sure. happened. Right. But just – briefly describe maybe even in more recent times what that landscape has changed from where you when you grew up to like where we're at right now sure yeah uh, it's just kind of a indication of how much has changed over the last hundred years and frank and i were having a conversation the other day about this the most registered dog breed in 1885 by the akc was an english setter wow the (laughs) second most common breed was a red setter or irish setter which is what, what i own now and that basically they're like, I call them, they're like heirloom tomatoes. You know, they're just like. <laughs> that's a, yeah, you know, that's a comparison. The, the, the third, fourth, and fifth were English pointers, Gordon setters, you know. And so that tells you right there how many no, quail. No. If there were that many dogs, there were quail. They were there for a purpose. They, were there, they weren't there for pets, you know. They, right. People didn't have right. pets in 1885, at least not that many. So quail been in decline for a long time. We've just have data for the last, since 1966, through the breeding bird survey data but um there's been huge changes in how farming practices you know have been implemented and i'm not degrading farmers because i as i said i was one Mm -hmm. um and i like to eat (laughs) so um you know they're just trying to make a living like anyone else but the intensity of change especially after the second world war where a lot of you know synthetic fertilizers and, and pesticides were implemented and so there's been a huge intensification and extensification of agriculture. So on a given acre, we're maximizing yields to increase profit, and we're doing that on more acres. Yeah. So, so the plant communities within a crop field has become more simplistic, and so which has created a situation with less food, Definitely. less insects. Okay. And then in the forest system, we have way more forest east of the Mississippi River than we ever had. Mm-hmm. All right. I work in a forestry school. You know, the foresters push lines and pines, you know, so I get it. But, you know, we've lost tons of grassland to, to, to trees. Uh, that's partly because we planted them. That's partly because we've not burned the landscape like we mm-hmm. did and, and succession has, has started to take over. So it's just been a constant pinching of habitat from angles of forestry, agriculture, some of it to urban urbanization. And then, and then on rangeland systems, obviously, converge into a lot of exotic grasses. Mm-hmm. You know, it used to be native grass. Now it's Bermuda, fescue, bahia, et cetera. So you, anywhere in the country you go, it's almost entirely different than it was 50 years ago with few exceptions. Seem, seems like the phrase that we've done some podcasts on before is like the monoculture mindset. Mm-hmm. When you're in the timber side of things, it's pines. What can we do to promote pines? Mm-hmm. In the crop side, here's our crop. Let's just pour everything we can do and make this the only thing growing, living in the field. Sure. 
Same thing with pastures. We're going to just only focus on yeah. this grass. Sure. Monoculture, monoculture, monoculture. Well, yeah, I mean, it's basically agriculture 101. I mean, I took ag classes mm-hmm. in high school and whatever. Mm-hmm. That's that's what you're trained to do, and it makes sense, right? You're trying to reduce yep. competition. Um, so I get it, but it's the quail have been diminished because of it. Sure. You know, um, you're, one of your, you're, you're giving two presentations tomorrow mm-hmm. at, at Quail Night. One of them is titled State of the Bob White. Sure. And that, that's one that, that I'm really interested in, in, in hearing. Yeah. So um, without, I mean, nobody here is going to see your presentation. So <laughs> you, you can, <laughs> yeah, it's not proprietary, I mean, yeah. right? So no, um, what, what, what are you going to speak on with respect to the State of the Bob White? What are some of the key topics that you're going to hit, and 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 right. what do you see as the state of the Bob White as it currently is, right. and looking ahead, five ten years? Yeah, I, I call it the state of the Bob White, a pending crisis we can't avert. That's the subtitle. Wow. Um, and I'm I look at it through a couple lenses. One is we're losing the bird doll culture, yep. and I feel like that's important because that shows you the lack of the connection that humans have with the bird. I worked with a guy at Mississippi State, and he said something to me one time that I'll never forget. He said, the dog is your direct connection to the bird. It's like the conduit. Hmm. And, and, you know, and he he basically called it a sacrament. He he got religious on me because he was a a preacher, also was a professor. And he said the dog was like the sacrament, you know, Hmm. uh, between the human and the bird. And I I, I get it. I mean, anybody that owns a bird dog and, and sees that relationship sees the dog interact with the birds and you're harnessing that genetics of that dog to get a shot of the cubby. There's something you can't describe there. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think it's important that we recognize that we're losing that, as you mentioned earlier. Um, And we're losing it because the birds are declining. So I'm going to talk about the loss of bird dogs. I'm going to talk about, loss of number of hunters mm-hmm. um in georgia we in the last 20 years since 2002 we've gone from 30,000 quail hunters to 10,000 okay. so we've lost 20,000 quail hunters in, in 20 years wow um oklahoma has gone from 50,000 to 20,000 they've lost 30,000 quail hunters in 20 that's years. oklahoma wow. that's that's like a mecca of quail I in know. a good year right yeah a lot fewer voices advocating this, so it's a bird. negative feedback yep. loop right it's like the more the less birds you have, the less hunters. Therefore, the less hunters you have, they're going to voice support mm-hmm. of quail management, mm-hmm. which means you're going to have fewer quail. So it's a spiral that once you get to some point, you know, I don't know if you can get out of it. Right. Um, so we lost a ton of hunters. I'm going to talk about that. And then I'm going to talk about the populations of the birds themselves. And with rare exceptions, I don't care what state you're in or what, you know, if you're in the Piedmont of Georgia or the coastal plain, they're, at, you know, declining some places 7% a year, some three, some, if you're lucky, one. A mm-hmm. uh, few parts of the country have shown increases in the last 20 years, but on the percentage basis, it's a very small part of the country has done that. Quail restoration now is we know that we can't bring them back to the eight, 80s level, right. or 60s levels. So we know we're not going to bring them back over those huge geographies, but the problem is if you don't have birds across large areas, when you go do management, where are the birds going to come from? Right. Yeah. So you, you've got to have them persistent in the landscape. Otherwise, when you do good management, you're going to have a silent spring, you know? Yeah. So it, it's we're at the point now that if we don't do something, some of these geographies, 
we're just completely losing forever unless, you know, translocation or something like that, which is not a solution that huge spatial scale. Right. So the dogs, the hunters, the birds themselves is what I'm going to talk about. And, I, you know, it's hard not to be doom and gloom about it. And I do see positive things to talk about. Mm-hmm. But in general, it's, it's overall, you know, it's negative overall with some positive things to talk about right. that we can hopefully build on. Uh, but it's, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, yeah, it is negative, I yeah. guess, but yeah. it's a call to action, yeah. right? I, mean, sure. I hope so. Sure. I hope that's so. That's the intent is, hey, yeah. this is dire. It is dire, yeah. It's been dire. It's been dire, yeah. But we're about to get shoved off the cliff. Yeah. Like, we're we're on the brink on some yeah. states. Uh, there's some states that are already fell off the cliff. Yeah, there's some. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania fell off the cliff. West Virginia. Yeah. Not that they ever had that many birds in West Virginia, no. but they had some. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I just can't yeah. imagine growing up in a state having never heard that whistle. I mean, we yeah. have kids and mm-hmm. high school students that now they're at that age of the entire life have never been in the presence of that bird. Yeah. I, you know, that's sad. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, 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 and it's going to continue to happen if we don't do something yeah. about it. Yeah. You mentioned that I, I was at, uh, we've got a little 10 acres in on our property that, We've just kind of let it go back to early successional stuff. And uh, it's had a cover or two, you know, move through every now and then. But for about four or five years, we never heard any. One day I got a call from my son at work. He's like, Dad, you'll never believe what's whistling out. And I knew what it was when he said whistling. <laughs> but Kind of gave it away. He gave it away. <laughs> but it was, it was, you know, it was, okay, so on one hand, it was exciting to see the, the excitement right. in his voice right. that he would call me at work and say, man, guess what I heard. But it's also sad that he had to feel that excited to call <laughs> yeah. me at work and right. say, mm-hmm. yeah. I heard a quail, right? Well, yeah, similar story. Like I said, my grandfather quit hunting in the mid-'80s, which was sad to see, especially looking back now. He was 55 or so then, and so never really got to bird hunt through his retirement years. And and then just when I saw him back in May, he heard a bob white whistle behind his house the first time in ten years, yeah. and he was so excited about it. I mean, that he's eighty four years old, yeah. <laughs> and he was like, you know, he was like, which was good to hear, but yeah. also sad the fact that it had been ten years. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned um, briefly that there are some places that there has been some success or some sure. slight increases. Yeah, and that. That, but that speaks to the importance of quail being a part of the culture. Because sure. where those places are occurring, sure. quail are the, the hunting culture is driving the, those increases in a large extent. Maybe not in West Texas when you're, when you're so weather dependent. Sure. But certainly in the plantation regions of the southeast, the quail hunting culture is, is driving that. It's hard to think of a place that's shown consistent increases, non-weather related increases east of the Mississippi River that that the cause or the insta instigating factor was not hunting. Right. It's it's someone wanted to have the opportunity and, and it doesn't take much. Folks have very realistic expectations a lot of times, so we don't give them credit enough for that. But it's very few times that we have examples where someone did it just because it's because they wanted to hunt them and wanted their grandchildren to be able to hunt them or something like that. That's been 
the consistent motivating factor. There's mm-hmm. exceptions to that, but you're exactly right. Yeah. And and to get to that level takes very purposeful management. Very we talk pur- about when we're doing consults with folks, whether it's deer, turkeys, quail, it doesn't matter. Sure. We have to be intentional and purposeful in what we're doing. Right. Right? As, as landowners or managers. Yes. And there's very, you know, Western Kansas, not knocking folks, but quail yeah. are a byproduct. Sure. In a lot of places right. in Western Kansas. Right. It's just dumb luck. Right. The landowner isn't hunting them. Sure. They're just there. Right. But that doesn't happen in anywhere east of the Mississippi. <laughs> no. If you're not trying. Yeah. It's not happening. Correct. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Which makes it difficult. That's <laughs> right. But that, yeah. I think that goes back into the importance of how much culture ties into this. If, yeah. you if your heartstrings aren't pulled by it, then you're not going to go out there and work hard. And, like, the landscape's got to change a lot and in a big way to even just get back to yeah. a sustainable sure. population. Yeah, I don't want to get all psychological on, on here, but, you know. <laughs> Every, feel free. Every, yeah. I mean, if, if it plays a role, feel free. I, I teach decision making to undergraduates, and and everything we do, for the most part, comes from our value system. Our values dictate our beliefs. Our beliefs dictate our behaviors. Mm-hmm. You have to value the bird, or the dog work, or the flush, or seeing a child grin, or and laugh that they missed the bird. Whatever, you have to value that because that's what's going to make you purposeful and, af- and affect your behavior that's going to do the things required yes. to make that happen. Yes. So it comes, it's internal. It's a, it's a value-based system. And values can be changed, but it takes a long period of time. You can't walk up with somebody and say, you need to care about quail. It's not that easy. Right. Uh, they have to believe it in their value system uh, before it affects their behavior purposefully right yeah well one of the things that i'm encouraged about is is we're about to have close to 300 people here Mm -hmm. to talk about quail sure to learn about quail and and it's not all bobwai we've got western quail represented here but that's maybe a third to 25 percent of this conference most of it is bobwai so There, there is still a lot of interest in Bob White. There is, yep. uh, and and that's encouraging to see. It's not like we had fifty people sign up and three, you know, you know, thirteen papers submitted. I mean, we've got a full two day. So that's there's a lot of work being done. There's there's still people that care, and so that's that's encouraging. Yeah, you know, from that standpoint, absolutely. I, I think quail biologists are naturally uh, optimistic. So, you know, we have our days when we're not. Mm-hmm. Um, we're romantic people. We, you know, and not in the love sense of, right. <laughs> but in in the, you know, we appreciate the art of things and the, the passion of it, and so it's it's not just nuts and bolts. It's, yeah, it's a it's a cultural thing. It's an art. Yeah. You know, above all else, this podcast is a land management podcast. Sure. So yeah. we would be remiss if we sure. didn't get your thoughts on some <clears throat> some top land management. Yeah. Um, techniques or, or, or some critical land management things that, that landowners need to be in. Cause this is largely a landowner based audience. They're, yep. they're looking for, right. for advice on, on managing their property. So, um, you know, you've, you've been out there, you've done the work, you, you, yeah. you know, you're seeing responses from management that's put on the ground. Sure. You're seeing those responses. So, uh, what are some of the things that top two or three things that you, that you can see that we can really change to, to affect change with Bob White? 
Uh, fire management is probably <clears throat> consistently something you can generalize throughout. I don't care if you're in Florida, Missouri, Kansas, wherever, either how you apply fire, whether, whether or not you apply it or not, and how you apply it is going to affect quail a lot. Um, in, in Georgia, where we have a lot of rain, uh, and succession happens very rapidly. We have to burn every two years. If you mm-hmm. don't, it'll be a sweet gum forest in a matter of no yep. time. I'm sure some of the areas out here, y'all can maybe get away with a little bit longer fire return interval in some areas. Some still you're going to have to burn every two years mm-hmm. um, because you just don't have the – again, like we're talking about the system changing, we have species of plants that are in situations that they weren't historically. And so you have to manage them with fire uh, – to make sure they don't take over sweet gums being one. I don't know what the plan is out in, in this part of Missouri. Maybe a sweet gums, I don't know. But uh, No, thank goodness. Okay, <laughs> yeah. all right. But, but we have plenty of other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just rank indie. I mean, if they even have warm season, it's, yeah, yeah, we it's, just get rank Indian and big blue okay. cultivars that were planted in the 80s. Okay, yeah. Just, so, you know, just you name it. Right. We so, get too much rain. Yeah, yeah. So fire um, – if you get out in the air, you know, Texas, you're going to have to extend that fire frequency for you know, wider five, six, seven years maybe um, because the drought cycles take care of succession for you right, right there. Um, so f- fire is, is more is probably the top tool. You, don't, you can have quail without fire, but from an economic perspective, it's one of the cheaper tools you mm-hmm. can use, obviously, and you're going to – Create bare ground. You're going to stimulate forb growth, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So fire. By the way, let me interrupt you for yes, a second, sir. listeners. We didn't set this up, <laughs> but Land and Legacy's number one management tool is fire. Okay, everyone well, knows yes. it. So uh, yeah. James was not prompted no, to say I that. I didn't, I didn't pay him under the table. This no, no. is literally off yeah, the cuff. Right. So. Yeah, and, and and like you were saying, you had to be purposeful how that fire is applied, and you can't do it one year. And then do it 10 years later and expect to see quail results. It's got to be something you do every other year. Not not uh, something you have to do every year, but not necessarily on the same, same patch of land. Yeah. Yep. It's you're rotating that fire across. You know, if you have a 100-acre patch of land, I'd break it into four burn blocks or something like that, and I'd burn half of it every year in 25-acre blocks, and I'd move that around. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. just kind of a rule of thumb. Every plan, even if it's deer exclusive, there's never been a land and legacy plan written that did not include fire. Right. Well, good for y'all. For, yeah. It doesn't matter. Deer, well, turkeys, it, you name it, well, it's fire. And like I said, even in Georgia, if you're managed for deer, you, I've heard the bread stuff that for deer, three- to five-year fire return in Georgia. I'm like, well, if you do that, you're going to have a sweet gum. Yep. <laughs> that's not good for deer either. <laughs> right. So, so if you want deer, you're still going to have to burn every two years in, in the coastal plain of Georgia. Uh, so, yeah, fire is super important. Herbert Stoddard said that in the 20s. Uh, I'm not saying anything new. Um, the the other, I'd say, management tool, and you have to be careful with this in some places, would be disking. Um, again, depends on the soils, and but that you want to disk in a time – of year that's going to give you that ragweed response. Mm-hmm. And, and that, again, the site is going to dictate that and your climate is going to right. dictate that. Right. Um, in, in Georgia, we can, we can do it in January and, and, 
and it works just fine. I, I'm yeah. not exactly sure when that would be here, um, which is a lesson everybody on the podcast is, even though I'm a, quote, quail expert, I don't show up in northern Missouri and say, oh, yeah, what I did in Georgia is going to work right, right. here. I'm going right. to sure. call Frank and Kyle and say, all right, y'all have done it here. What? Mm-hmm. Tell me the nuances that you're sure. dealing with. Yep. The regional specifics. Yeah, the principles are the same, right? Bingo. The principles are the same. You're trying to create a plant community that's, that's full of grass uh, with some shrub, but how you get there, the prescriptions are going to vary whether you're in South Georgia versus North Missouri. So I'd be an idiot to show up in North Missouri and say, oh, yeah, Georgia, we do it this way. Or show up in Texas and do it. And you're gonna you're gonna make mistakes. Mm-hmm. It's that. not a cookie cutter type. Plant. It's not. Yeah. It's the the principles are the same. The we didn't we didn't pay not, him to say that either. No, no. And, and I recently had a Quail Forever article in the, their magazine that says is that exact thing. Mm-hmm. The principles don't really change, but the prescriptions do. Love it. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. yeah. And, oh yeah. By the way, what's Landon Legacy's number one favorite? Broadleaf plant, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. it's it, it's a great plant for <laughs> deer, turkeys, was, quail, whatever. That was also not set yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you have allergies, you may not like that. Oh plant. yeah, right. But right. but uh, it's 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 a good forage, a good seed producer. Yeah, the, the scientific name of ragweed interprets to food of the gods. Did you know that? I didn't, I didn't know, know that. I didn't know yeah. that. So they had some humor back then. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. yeah. Ambrosia, gods. right? Yeah. Ambrosia, yeah. Yeah. Artemisophilia, yeah. yeah. Food yeah. of the gods. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I had to share that it. with my students. Yeah. yeah. It's biblical. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. That's, yeah. God loved it, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's awesome. I knew, I knew it was good. Yeah. 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 You know, it, it seems like the, those prescriptions that you talked about really are going to have a huge effect on brood habitat. Sure. Right? And that's we have preached that and preached that. Right. That seems to be the most limiting factor that we run into on properties. Sure. Generally, there's enough to too much shrubby cover. Yeah. Generally, there's enough to too much grass. Yeah. But generally, there's not right. enough or any brood cover. Yeah, right. a, lot of, yeah. a lot of folks, you know, well, this is my nesting cover. I got to do this for nesting cover. And, and our research show, and I, you've tracked plenty of radio-colored birds. Yeah. More than I want to admit, yeah. <laughs> they'll lay eggs about anywhere. You don't the, take the, much. The farce <laughs> of having a specific plant for a quail to nest in is one of the worst yes. things. They'll nest in almost anything, and it really doesn't affect their survival what plant that is. That's just reality. Yep. I've seen them nest in fescue, bahia grass, Bermuda grass, uh, a hawthorn bush, a palmetto frond. It was mm-hmm. crumpled up into a ball. Um, mm-hmm. All the above. And so, again, where we have plenty of vegetation, they're going to find a place in right. the nest. And typically, they're, the vegetation site is not going to affect survival that much. It's the brood cover. Yeah, yeah. And, and our population modeling shows that recruitment, population increases and decreases are most sensitive to recruitment, not adult survival. Obviously, adult survival is important, mm-hmm. but recruitment is where it's at. And so, chick survival is obviously a big part of recruitment. Right. Yep. Yeah, we've always argued adult survival is irrelevant if there's no recruitment. Yeah. Right? You have to become an adult. Sure. To, That's right. To sure. be worried about yeah. survival. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. The yeah. chicken or the egg. Right. Can deal, but not not yeah. to say that again that adult survival sure. is not important, but some something's got to lay the egg. But it, it population fluctuations more mainly driven by recruitment. Yeah. 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 
Well, um, James, this has been a treat. Um, you've raised the collective IQ of this outfit about two hundred percent. Kyle has contributed about three percent of that. So um, that's hurtful. But round, at, at, round up. Yeah, and, and so I think that think the listeners will, will understand when I say that James is one of the top quail minds in the country today, and and and, and there has been some some retirements in the quail world. Fred Guthrie. Sure. Dale Rollins and I, um, James is right up there with with those folks. He's the next one of those guys. Yeah, we'll be well, talking about James Martin as the next oh Fred Guthrie some one of these days. Not a lot of not put pressure on you, <laughs> but um, yeah, just yeah. knowing you for for these few years, yeah. um, it's it's pretty evident. And 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 the the amount of amount of folks, whether it's NGOs or state agencies or federal agencies that want to collaborate with you in your lab is yeah. pretty telling. Well, I, I appreciate that, and, and we have been fortunate, you know, and I think it's because I appreciate the work that you all do. You know, I, it, I get my passion, one, intrinsically that I appreciate the bird, but that only carries you so far. You need folks like you all that keep that going because I could come up with all the scientific papers in the world, but there's no one out there applying it. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I might as well be writing a fiction novel. Um <laughs> So uh, yeah, I appreciate that, and it uh, we owe it to the bird. Yeah, absolutely, we do. We yeah. Absolutely, do. So before we close out and everything, to try and just ramp up some bird culture around here, we'll start with Kyle and we'll go around. So you can have the hardest job. <laughs> you have to name your favorite aspect, biology, physiology, whatever of the Bob White quail. Favorite part about the bird. And you can't repeat what oh. someone else has said. So to try and get people excited about how just cool this bird is, what is it that just gets you excited, Kyle? You can't say that it tastes good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Got to go beyond that. Like everything about it is amazing. This yeah, is difficult. Yeah, I know. Um, I had to phone a friend. Yeah. I, I, for me, of course, I grew up, you know, I'm carrying a BB gun when I'm a little kid. So just mm-hmm. the – it's just so charismatic to me. I mean, the it, the whistle is so distinct. It's so clear. It's yeah. so crisp yeah, right. on the air. Right. So crisp. The colors, to me, some people would think maybe a Bob White's kind of boring to a Gamble's. But to me, it's just an incredible bird with all this mm-hmm. detail. Yeah. To me, it's just this massive, charismatic bird. So I guess All the aspects wrapped into one. Yes. Okay. You know, one of the things I find so cool about Bob White is they – they exist or have existed from the East Coast to Colorado right. mm-hmm. and from southern Wisconsin yeah. down into Mexico. Right. I mean, that is a wide range Huge. for a bird. Yep. And, and they have adapted and, and made a living and, and, have, ex, and have, have had ex, great populations in the past in those places. And so that says a lot for a bird that can, be, that, that can exist at those range of latitudes mm-hmm. and, right. and that that extend across the country. I think yeah. that's pretty cool. And, and yeah. the dynamics are different. So sure. West Texas quail, Bob White, is totally different sure. than a Southern Georgia Bob White with sure. respect to how they react to the environment and everything. And sure. that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Lenny, totally. Lenny Brennan said it best. He, he wrote a chapter in the last NBCI, and he used the, the phrase adaptive plasticity. Mm. And, and that's, that describes that ability of what Frank's talking about. Uh, my thing is, and I don't know how many people know this about quail ecology, is the, the idea they uh, uh, amalgamate broods and they adopt chicks from other broods. Right. 
So it's pretty amazing to me that if a hen dies and she has chicks, that another hen would adopt those chicks and raise them, or another male will adopt those chicks and raise them, even though they might not be his or the hen might not be hers. That behavior of kinship or altruism they exhibit allows them to explode and really increase in populations when conditions are favorable because even if the hen dies, those chicks are mm-hmm. going to make it because someone adopted them. There's a lot of lessons in that from a human perspective, yes, right? certainly. You know, and so to me, that's, that's something that bird demonstrates to us that, you know, they have a soul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I, 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 that's a fascinating thing, and not all game birds do that. Yeah, um, it's like a community feel it, to that yeah, bird. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's why when the populations get low, they start to even declining at a faster rate because they can't exhibit that behavior nearly as much. Sure. That's that's great insight. I mean, we, we knew that they did that. I mean, Kyle and I saw that in our, yeah. in our research. Yeah. But the, the way you put it is – gives more insight into how that really works and and the lessons that it can teach us. Yeah. Great. Excellent point. Yeah. Well, um, this has been great. Um, thank you, James, for your time. Look forward to tomorrow in the next couple of days. Um, thanks for making the trip. Oh yeah. And, um, you know, have, have a safe trip back to the wilds of Norway when you head back. Yeah. I'll be there for until December and, uh, then I'll be back to the States and yeah, hopefully be able to apply some of the things I learned with, Studying ptarmigan here in the U.S. So. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much, James. It's been yeah, great. Appreciate yep. it. Yep.